month, month of July, we typically have guest speakers. And this week, there, or this month, there's been a theme to our guest speakers in that they're all from the Reservoir Church in Cambridge. And this is a church that's really important to us because this is the church that sent out Charles and Caroline to plant the river 14 years ago. It's the church that Charles helped found when they first started up in Cambridge. So today we have a very fun guest speaker. Her name is Ivy, and she has a really warm, laid-back approach to things that I think you're really going to enjoy. And she's looking at me like I'm crazy, but those have been my interactions with her. She seems very warm and laid back. So maybe we're also going to see another side to her today as well, which could be really exciting as well. So please join me in welcoming Ivy. Good morning. It is really fun to be here. Turns out New York is really fun. <laughs> I, um, I've been in Boston now 22 years, maybe, and only come to New York three times. This is my third time. Um, so I came down with a friend who, it turns out, is her very first time in New York. So we have, like, crushed this city over the last... 20 hours, maybe? (laughs) Uh, It's awesome. Yeah, so as as Sarah mentioned, um, I've been part of Reservoir Church for 17 years. Um, I was there when uh, Charles and Caroline were there, uh, way back when we set up in a school um, and just had these great memories of that time together. Um, So it's fun to be here. It's awesome to take the bus down. And back today, um, and lovely to uh, experience some of, some of the magic that I've heard of of the hospitality of John and Sarah um, firsthand. I should not be moving. As I was saying, John and Sarah are awesome. I um, had heard lots about their hospitality, um, but it's one thing to experience it for yourself. They welcomed us in uh, yesterday, and I knew their hospitality was for real when they were like, you can have some food, you can have any of our food, we don't really have any, but you are welcome to our booze. I was like, all right, they're, they're talking now, this is good hospitality. Um, so anyway, thanks for having me, it's a joy. Um, let me pray for us before I get going. So, Jesus, I thank you for the ways that you connect us uh, by our spirit and souls across state lines and across uh, so many things. And I thank you for being here today, which feels so natural and awesome. And um, I just pray for this topic today around courage, uh, that you would meet all of us where we are at, where we're sitting right now, whether the word courage um, sort of stirs up Uh, a feeling of exhaustion already, Um, or it feels challenging, or it feels um, like something you've always done as a part of who you are. God, I just pray that you would bless it and be right alongside of us and and speak to us exactly as uh, you need to this morning. Amen. 
So I've been thinking a little bit about courage and the pictures of courage that we get uh, through social media, through our society, the messaging around what courage can look like in our lives, and, and I guess even in written form, like how we receive messages or storylines about courage. Um, and even I realize as I look at the Bible, I can recognize my own inclination to go towards stories such as the Old Testament that have these sort of magnificent stories of courage. They're the flashy ones, right, of David and Goliath or Moses or Daniel or Noah. Um, sort of that's where I go, that I think maybe there's something in us that these parts of t- history are the, the ones we tend to remember, the flashy ones that involve sort of decrees and battles and drama. Um, But today, I really want to poke at courage from a different angle, a courage that looks a little more subtle and a little more present, I think, in all of our ordinary lives, day in and day out. And I think this angle on courage helps us access courage more regularly and see ourselves as courageous beings a little more consistently. Maya Angelou speaks of this kind of courage that I'm going to talk about today. She says, I'm convinced that courage is the most important of all the virtues because without courage, you cannot practice any other virtue consistently. You can be kind for a while. You can be generous for a while. You can be just for a while or merciful for a while or even loving for a while. But it is only with courage that you can be persistently and insistently kind and generous and fair. Courage is... I think seems to be the source and steady undercurrent for all of the ways that Jesus calls us to interact in this world, right outside of a church space, but in the streets, on the sidewalks, wherever we touch. Sometimes I think that we might be our own stumbling blocks to courage, that our own limits of courage are how we define it. And even more that our definitions sort of tend to skew towards the binary Right? Either I am with courage or I am without courage. For me, courage is often attached to some sort of outcome that looks like success or it looks like change. And in some cases, this is indeed how courage looks. But I think the risk is that we miss the in-between, right? the layers of courage in between all of those binary ways of thinking about courage. So today, I'd love to, to look at the Bible and look at a couple of women whose stories maybe aren't on the front showcase of what you think of, of, of as courage. Um, but there are these midwives, these two women named Shifra and Pua. And I think they give us a lot to look at in the in-between space of courage. And I think it's anchored in their utter belief of God and their embodiment in all of the ways they interact in life. So if you've never heard these names before, Shifra and Pua, fear not. I was here in New York, my second time, a couple months ago, at a gathering just a few blocks away with some pastors of the Blue Ocean Faith Network. And I was sort of thinking about this storyline, these women, and I mentioned their names among pastors. And you could sort of see (laughs) across some of the pastors' faces like, come again? Like, what are their names? Who are those people? Uh, So fear not. Uh, We're like learning about these stories together, which is what's fun. Um, But before I get to their story, I want to share two vignettes, really quick stories from my own life, and then get to Shifra and Pua. So vignette number one. 
when I was in high school, just a few years ago, <laughs> maybe 20-ish years ago, um, I was in high school. I was uh, a junior or senior. I was taking this upper-level math class, and it was very clear very early on that I was not doing well in this class, like really not doing well. Um, and I thought, you know, I was the only one, but as it turns out, there were like many, many people in this class that were like on the verge of failing. Um, and there was also a pattern, as it turns out, that this particular teacher, every time he taught this class, this was scenario, the scenario that a couple people would really sail and do well, and then like the rest of the class was just like utterly failing. Um, so as we started to figure this out, my um, peers and I, we sort of started to talk to the teacher and say like, hey, is there a way that we could get extra teaching or time after school to like wrap our heads around what this is? This is. What is this math? Like, can you help us out? And the teacher was like, that is absolutely preposterous. Like, this is the way my system has always been. It's the way it's going to continue to go. And I was like, well, that response is preposterous. <laughs> so I organized this walkout. Um, and I'm from a very tiny, tiny town in Maine. Um, so for somebody to sort of challenge the way things had always been was a little bit of a, a curveball. Uh, but the next day, uh, we gathered our textbooks and like went up to the teacher's desk, put them down on his desk. Everybody walked out. And we went down to the principal's office and had a, we had given them the heads up that we were going to do this and, uh, and started to have a conversation. Voila. Like, what could it look like to have inspired teaching where you're like leaning into the students? <laughs> Vignette number two. A couple of months ago, yeah, maybe a couple months now, I went to a gathering down in North Carolina that invited um, a myriad of voices that weekend to answer the question, why are you still a follower of Jesus in these times, in these days? Why do you still follow Jesus? And um, many of the speakers that weekend were, they were all women, um, and they were stories from a personal perspective of pain. A lot of the stories were of pain um, as a result of uh, their race or gender or sexual orientation and physical illness as well. But the stories did not shy away from the realness of Jesus. And it was just like incredibly <laughs> beautiful to be in this space with all these voices um, it was really inspiring, and I sort of walked out of there. You know, like when you've been around something so inspiring, you're sort of like puffed up, and you're like, yeah, I'm going to be courageous and harness all of that collective energy from that space. Um, and so the next morning, I went to check out of my hotel super early. It was like 4 a.m., and I walked up to the desk. There was a woman working at the desk, and then there was like appeared to be a patron on the other side who was, I don't know, I got kind of a weird vibe as I approached. Like he was kind of glommy and like talky at 4 a.m. <laughs> and so as I approached, I was like, kind of just internally like, I'll just check out like what, what this is all about as I get there. And it was clear pretty early, like he was like, oh, where are you from? Where are you going? And I was like, I'm headed back to Boston. And he did this really poor impression of Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> like, as I said, I was going back to Boston. And I was like, all right. <laughs> Something is not right here. Um, it was clear like he was like a little tipsy or like had stayed up. I don't know. I don't know what the scenario was, but he was kind of annoying this woman. And so I went into a different space to get coffee. And as I was getting coffee, I was like, oh, you know, what should I do when I walk back through that 
by the desk. Like, what should I say? What would be helpful? Um, and so, you know, time ticks on, and I just start walking, and I just walk right by, right out the door. <laughs> just left. That was vignette number two. So I'm going to pause there, and hopefully, magically, these stories will fold back in at the end and make sense. <laughs> So now to the midwives, like the main, the main attraction here. Um, Shifra and Pua, we come close to their stories uh, through the story of Moses, right? Many of you probably have heard this story. It like became a motion picture, you know, it's like kind of out there. Um, but this Hebrew baby, right, that was drawn from the water and raised in Pharaoh's courts, who didn't become a, a prince, but he became a liberator, right, for all of his people, these people, the Israelites, who have been enslaved, considered less than human by the Egyptians. And it's this story of the great exodus out of Egypt into the promised land. That is the story we know, the story of Moses. But we don't know Shifra and Pua's story, which is actually the story that sets the stage for that to even happen. So let's read along and hear a little bit of their story here. I think it's in your um, program book, booklet there. So this is the story it picks up right at the beginning of Exodus. It says, Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. <laughs> so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more Numerous. Whew. Good. So a little more context here where we pick this up. The Israelites had moved to Egypt, right, during a time of famine and starvation. And Joseph had been sold into slavery in Egypt as a result of his jealous brothers. And he had helped the Israelites land here. And his time in Egypt was blessed by God. And he worked his way into high standing in Egypt. And the Israelites fared well. And the Israelites and the Egyptians for a time get along pretty well together. Soon, though, it says here, a new king came who did not know Joseph. Right? Who, so that sort of means like he didn't know his people. He didn't know his God. And therefore, as he looked at, at all of these numerous Israelites who were strong, he saw them with fear and suspicion and as a threat and he started to regard them as the other, right? A very prominent posture throughout history as we look at others. So he attempts to limit their growth in dehumanizing systemic ways, right? Slavery, forced labor, oppression. 
but it doesn't seem to keep them down. So he keeps sort of moving with his strategies. He enacts a fear campaign. What if we're attacked by our enemies and these growing numbers side with them? We'll be crushed. And he puts that out to the public and they buy it. And so there's more widespread systemic oppression and segregation. Pharaoh's xenophobia pushes him to take then even more a drastic measure to these outsiders, right? And so under government sanctions, Shifra and Pu are enlisted to participate in the extermination of Hebrew baby boys. So the text reads that these women were Hebrew midwives, yet there's a lot of conversation around scholars that, in fact, probably they were Egyptian, but they attended Hebrew women's births. So they were Egyptian women midwives to Hebrew women births. And I'm inclined to go with this, thinking that, oh, Pharaoh would probably want his own people to, like, carry out this decree. So this means Shifra and Pua, their whole vocational lives, have attended both Hebrew and Egyptian births. And midwives were often thought to be people who couldn't themselves have their own children. So they were already sort of marginalized to the side of society. And these women were likely Nubian midwives from now uh, northern Sudan, meaning that their relationships throughout most of their lives had spanned cultural and geographical lines or division. And a midwife's primary role, right, is to usher in life regardless of status or race or any other defining division to assist and guide and protect life. So Pharaoh's pretty strategic, right? He's like, who actually comes closest to life? These midwives, right? And that's where I can drive in fear to promote death. And I can imagine that Shifra and Pua probably ran through a few scenarios in their mind, right? Like either one, I'm courageous, And we say no to Pharaoh. We refuse to follow his orders. And then we likely die, and maybe our families and our friends by extension. Or we aren't courageous. And we say yes to Pharaoh. We follow his orders. We promote the sovereignty of our state. And by the work of our own hands, bring death to the next generation of Hebrew males. So this either-or sort of picture doesn't seem to be quite a complete picture, right, of what courage, I think, can look like. And thankfully, these midwives seem to know another way to courage deep within their spirit. And I think they do utilize this tiny conjunction word, and. It says in the Bible, wait, and we fear God, right? They feared God and did not do what the king wanted. They revere, they love, they trust in God. This and, this belief in God, seems to be a way of harnessing courage. And it seems as though it isn't only found in high-stakes moments, but it's been built in and developed over their lives, in their vocations, in the way they sought and went across geographical and cultural lines and saw people at them all along their life. Loving God helps them see beyond that binary, That courage is far more a choice of saying yes or no to Pharaoh. But it's instead about saying yes and yes to life with God. These midwives are courageous. No doubt about that. They are divinely defiant, right? 
They're heroically brave in their refusal to kill the baby boys. And they're super clever in their explanation of why that is, right? They actually uphold, it's a, it's a, I think, a subversive move because they actually uphold the strength and dignity of the Hebrew people in that statement. And this is the part of the story we, we would remember, right? These four verses. Super courageous. Leads to an entire liberation for people. But the subtler courage in here that lets them say, and I fear God, is the type of courage that I want in my everyday life. It's true, I think, for how these midwives moved in all of their life. They were involved deeply at the center of women, women's lives and their families' lives, right? To just go in and assist at a birth was not the way of a midwife. A midwife is one who identifies with pain, who sits with people in pain and holds their hands and confronts spirits that are full of despair and say, only I want to give up. Day after day, birth after birth, they come alongside the other, these Hebrew women, who they should hate. They take their hands, they rub their backs, they say again and again, and there's a way. You can't see it yet, but there is a way. And this breaks open a deep belief that courage wells up from inside of us, that it's not only found in taking on a piece of armor, that there's this God who sits alongside of them too, in their reality, a God who doesn't just go to the margins to serve someone, but one who lives at the margins. These midwives do this. They live at the margins. And in their vocation, take on a calling and oath to in all ways serve life. And the courage that they dip into is God's because they believe that he is truly with them. They greet pain, the pain of childbirth, the pain of injustice, the pain of not being seen. And these virtues of God, and I think that Maya Angelou speaks of, are birthed here because they believe that God is real. I can wonder if we sometimes wrestle with this question in our lives whether acutely or subconsciously, does what I do matter, right? Does it touch real life? Does it bring forth anything new or courageous into this world? These midwives seem to encourage us that yes, wherever we are, whatever we do, whoever we speak to matters. That if we do it with kindness and generosity and equity backed by a God that is real, it matters. These thousands of moments where they offer their laboring, birthing mothers cool washcloths to their heads, where they gently turn babies inside their wombs and listen for heartbeats, right? Those are all times of being so close to life and so close to God. And I think that can help us flip maybe our ingrained allergy of both and, and rewire us a little bit for life, God, as one. Beyond our sort of political or authoritative decrees or external circumstances that want to like just usher in fear. For Shifra and Pua, these moments compile and develop a courageous heart that doesn't filter, right? Life or no life or Egyptian or Hebrew or male or female. Instead, the passion for justice and care for all of humanity and humility, comes from a posture, I think, of and, 
and God. Omid Safi, I don't know if you've heard of him, he's a Duke University professor of Islamic studies. Uh, he said recently that this closeness to God is what allows us to see that the love we recognize in other people who love their babies and love their communities is the same love that we love our babies and our communities with. And when we can recognize this same love in one another, this is the and. We will not stand for something happening to other people's babies and community that we wouldn't want to have happen to our own. That is simply what we call justice. And this is the work of justice, birds out of a heart of courage and love. That's what they give us still today, I think, these women. So the two vignettes that I shared at the beginning about my own life were interesting to me because as I was framing this talk, they're just the first two sort of vignettes that came to mind about my own pictures of courage. And I recognized even in myself that I wanted to categorize one as more courageous and one without courage, right? I didn't label them as I was telling it to you, but maybe you were also sort of categorizing them. And maybe it's true, right? Maybe I did have a non-courageous moment and a more courageous moment. But I think it's the limited view of courage that we're sort of trained to take in. And I'm slowly beginning to realize that the question at hand isn't either am I with courage or am I without courage, because likely on any given day, I'm both and. Courageous and not courageous. The question is, can I harness the courage of a God that is always with me? If I can tip more towards this, I think I can see the hundreds to thousands of times throughout my days and my weeks where courage is live. Otherwise, I think those disparaging thoughts can take over, right? Am I only destined to be a prisoner to the Pharaoh or Pharaohs of our day? Will I ever witness more than pain or heartache? But the words of Paul here in Ephesians, which is also in your little program, I think help fill out those truncated questions for me. Um, with the power and realness of Jesus. So I'm going to riff off of that scripture a little bit, but you can follow along if you'd like. He reminds me that I'm not a prisoner of anyone else, but of Jesus who wraps me in humility and gentleness and patience and who gives me courage to lean toward other people with love, with an eagerness of heart that seeks to maintain the unity of the spirit. This, I realize, is the power of Jesus for the bonding posture of peace. This, I realize, is the courage that Jesus can offer so many of you to stand up and get out of bed every day, right? To walk into a day, into a society that for some of you, in the words of Lucille Clifton, will do everything it can to kill you. That is courage, and that is triumph. To stand up and get out of bed and meet the reality of your day, maybe in a sick body that's riddled with disease or infection, a body that is trying to murder you day in and day out. This is courage. Courage is to stand up and get out of bed, period. Nothing else to follow, just that one act for some of us. And it is courage that is full of sweat. A courage that says, and today I will rise. Because Jesus lives in the and, right? He doesn't seem to fit into the binary tracks so well. <laughs> He lives in our reality, which encompasses a lot of and. So, 
when we can say, and there's another way here with Jesus, another way to keep helping birth new life. I can't see it yet. You might not see it yet, but it's here. I think that posture allows us, as it did for these midwives, to ignite our moral imagination. We we have the humility to see the world around us as it is, and we have the audacity to believe and the passion to believe and imagine for a world as it could be. And us limiting our courage, I don't think, serves the world around us as well. We're called to be courageous and to believe that our everyday posture of heralding life in spaces where death only looks apparent will produce change somewhere down the line. Right? The outcome for Shifra and Pua, after this very courageous moment that we saw, quickly could feel very disappointing for them because Pharaoh steps in and ups his ante again and says, okay, great, that, that strategy didn't work, so here's another one. Go and throw all the baby boys into the river. Right? Their moment of courage is like quickly over. But what Shifra and Pua might not realize is that their story... Their whole story of being women who courageously live at the margins and stand against power and oppression will continue to be told. That their names will be kept alive and whispered maybe among the Hebrew women, even in birth, right, as signposts of resistance and hope. That their courage to say, and I fear God, would then in turn give Pharaoh's daughter and Moses' sister and Moses' mother the courage to protect and to hide and to nurse him to life. These names of Shifra and Pua are recorded. They're written down. We get to read them in scripture today that I think shows us that a lifetime of, of courage harnessed with the divine is worth 3,000 years of remembrance and legacy and still worth talking about today. While Pharaoh's fearful acts of dominating power and authority leave him nameless, and less than 300 years of fame. So perhaps our own roles every single day are akin to these midwives, to cherish other life as our own, to see ourselves as valuable and worthy in the, in the world, in the sidewalks, at the offices that you sit in. And maybe it is that we reclaim these spaces, these everyday spaces, as monumentally courageous, wherever it is we touch it. So if you're looking for practicals to try in this vein, I can give you some. Um, I don't know if you do. Like, yes, great, awesome. <laughs> so how, why, how might we think about harnessing courage in our own everyday lives? I think the first is this kind of, yeah, it's part of scripture from Romans. <laughs> weep with those who weep. Come close to those around you, essentially, is the like spirit of that. As Maya and, and uh, Jesus, I think, tell us, humility, compassion, empathy might be the most critical ingredients to a heart full of courage. And it allows our hearts to be softened to the ones around us, right? So pay attention to what's going on for folks around you and let your own heart sort of touch that. And then whatever you feel, whether it's, Sadness or anger, it like helps drive the direction of how you move out of that, whether it's you join a cause or you bring a meal to someone. It like helps guide where you go from there. Second, um, where can you utilize the word and? 
And that sort of reflection question, I guess, gets you to think about, oh, well, where have I been putting things in either or? Right? That's maybe the starting point. Helps you try to orient that way and sort of see what it produces as you reflect on your own life. Third, seek wisdom from people who have diversity of viewpoints. I imagine that Shifra and Pua were not the only two midwives in all the land. Right? There are probably other midwives that they went to and talked to when Pharaoh put this decree out. Like, what should we do? What's our best approach in this? How do I think about this? How do we move forward? What's the bigger picture? Right? And there was probably lots of generative thoughts, that conversation and dialogue that went on in there. And I think it's helpful to move forward with lots of other voices and viewpoints coming in. Fourth, check in each day to see where it is God is real to you. I think this helps you believe that the pharaohs of this time and in this land will not kill your spirit. Right? Where is God real to you in your everyday? I think it helps develop in this, this sense of like, oh, that, that is real and that's actually more powerful than anything external coming in. Lastly, if you have time, write down the names of the courageous people who come to mind to you. They could be your forerunners or perhaps your contemporaries. Um, but it's helpful, I think, to keep this narrative of courage live. And it's important because it keeps the name of Jesus alive. I think, in our actual days, not just in our memory, but right now, in our present reality. And that's our unending reservoir, actually, of courage and passion. So if you have time, write some names down. Think about these people. I often think of Shifra and Pua like putting sticky notes on their mirror with the names of their ancestors, right? Like Eve and Sarah and Hagar and Rebecca and Leah and Rachel, like their inspiration to like move forward. May that be true, true for you. Let me pray for us. So thank you, Jesus, that you are real. And God, in the ways that we can feel in and out of our days, like, oh, I don't know exactly where you are or exactly what you're doing right now. Oh God, would you give us faith or inspiration from people that are around us when we can't quite tap into you? Would you give us resources through people and through connection that help keep that alive long enough to feel your love and your intensity and your hand on our back and your warm embrace and your sweet words to us? God, give us space over the next couple of days or longer to enjoy where it is that we connect with you in a moment of silence or a walk in the park or wherever it is that God has been real to you, God, would you just expound in those areas and surprise us beyond that. Greet us in new areas that we haven't yet felt you before and lean into us with this reservoir of courage. In your name, amen. Thank you so much, Ivy. Hey.